So we're going to end a series of lessons that we've been working our way through. We've called Spread. And it's about spreading God's love and God's life and uh, God's grace to others. You know, in some circles, the, the word for that is evangelism. And that's a fancy word that's stolen from the Greek word, which is essentially evangelism or evangelion. And we brought that word into English. That word just means good news. And so they brought that word into English to express what it means to share the good news. So we're going to be talking today for the last time about sharing the good news. Let me put that in a larger context if I can. You know, in our life here together at Gateway, we've become absolutely convinced. In fact, for many of you, it's what brought you to a place like Gateway, right? We're convinced that you can't be who you were designed to be without a connection to God. The flow of your life does not work if you don't have a connection with God. And that connection with God, that's not just vital for you spiritually. That's vital for who you are. We've also become convinced, based on the teaching of the New Testament, but especially the teaching of Jesus, that in order to do that, in order to have that connection with God, it's not just like a religious thing. It's not, we don't just punch a ticket. It's not even just a decision that you make, although it does involve a decision, many decisions. But it's, it's a growing connection. It's a living thing. We've put it like this. We've said that in order to really have a connection with God, you've got to have practices in your life. You've got to put yourself in a place where you're growing up toward God in worship and toward God's people in connection and community. And then out toward the world in service and evangelism. It's vital for you and I. And you know what? It's also vital for them. This is vital for people who are far from God. We cannot be who we were designed to be. I mean in relationships. I mean in our career. We cannot be who we were designed to be unless we have that kind of flow in our lives. So, this morning, I'd like us to end by talking about what's at stake in the business of spreading God's love to others. We're going to look at a rich passage of Scripture. We've talked about this passage of Scripture before at Gateway, and most churches that I know of circle around this particular passage of Scripture a number of times during its life because it's so central, first of all, but it's also illustrative of how Jesus thought and what he was about when he was here with us. This is just an incredible, rich, little section of Scripture that, I mean, it's just packed. We're going to read, it's recorded for us in Matthew's biography of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, beginning of verse 25 through verse 30. And this is psychedelically cool, what Jesus talks about. It's really awesome. So Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30, and if you would, out of reverence for God's Word. Can you stand with me? If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to it. And if you have the phone app, open it up on the phone app, Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. Now, this is Jesus. So at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because, listen, you've hidden these things from the wise and learned. And you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. For this was your good pleasure. This was your decision. 
I mean, this is in part Jesus, right? Recognizing the sovereignty of our great God. All things have been committed to me by my Father. What? What? You've got to listen to what Jesus says about himself here. This business, and I've said this before at Gateway, the business of really admiring Jesus as a great guy and an awesome teacher, it doesn't work. I mean, he was either a lot more than that, or he was a nutcase. Listen to what he says. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, I pray that, you know, Lord, that today would be more than just tying up a series of conversations for us. Lord, that today would be life-giving. God, if there's anyone here today who has never really made a connection with you, and we're not talking about religion, we're talking about a connection with you. If there's anyone here today who has not made a connection with you, God, I ask beyond my words that right now you would begin to stir their heart, open their chest, massage yourself in. Lord, that today might be the day that something begins to percolate and you reveal yourself. All of us, God, this morning, we want to do our best to come like little children running into the arms of our Father. Because you know how much we need rest. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you would give it. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to repeat this morning. You may be seated. I'm going to repeat this morning the worst joke I ever heard in a sermon. And I don't know if it was the worst joke because the joke was so bad or because of who and how it was delivered. Many years ago, I was a young man and I was in seminary outside of Boston and a British Anglican pastor author who uh, had become well-known on both sides of the Atlantic, and his books were big sellers in the United States, and he'd become a conference speaker in a number of different settings. A man named John Stott, who was a titanic pastor and follower of Christ, John Stott came to our seminary to speak, and, you know, this was John Stott, which was hollowed ground for those of us who were at uh, this seminary, so we all show up for chapel to hear John Stott, and John Stott preaches about this passage. And he begins by saying, for him, over the years, this passage had become central to his understanding of what it means to have a connection with God and what it is that we're offering to others. So he's speaking to young men and young women who are going to go out and do what I'm doing. And this passage, Stott said, for him was central to what it is that we're going out to offer. And then Stott backs up and he says, it reminds me, I was going to feign a British accent, but that would be horrible. It reminds me, he said, of a Eastern European couple that I heard about, and we all got a little nervous. We thought, you know, like, is, is John Stott going to be a racist? What's going on? And then John Stott said, the husband, they got an invitation in the mail, and at the bottom of the invitation it said, 
RSVP. And Stott said, all of those of us who are cultured, we know what that means. It's a French phrase telling us to please respond to this invitation. You're being invited to something. And Stott said this Eastern European culture were unfamiliar with Western ways and they didn't know what RSVP stood for. And finally, the Eastern European man looked at his wife and he said, Wife, I know what it stands for. And Stott is probably expecting a ripple of laughter. None of us are laughing. We don't know if he's joking or not. And then Stott says, it stands for request to send vetting present. Okay, your reaction was better than our reaction was. And then the punchline, Stott said, you know, that reminds me of the way we approach our connection to God. We think that our connection with God is about what God requires of us. And our connection with God is what He offers us. It's an invitation. And that's what Jesus does in this passage. He, first of all, He tells us two delicious, profound truths about God. And then He gives us two invitations that are really kind of the same invitation. Let's go through those quickly. First of all, the two truths about God. Number one, God reveals truth to the humble seeker. That's truth number one that Jesus tells us. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Notice truth is hidden and truth is revealed and it is his to dispense. He decides what happens to truth. We're not nearly as clever as we think we are. We don't go out looking and discover it. He shows it to us. And it's hidden, interestingly, from the wise and the learned. That means people like us. We're one of the most highly educated areas in the country. Truth is hidden from the wise and learned. Think about what our culture values. Competence, position, knowledge. The Hebrews had a proverb that said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We have a proverb that says, knowledge is power. Truth is hidden from the wise and learned. And it's revealed to little children. And some of you who know Jesus' stuff, you know this is not the only time that Jesus used little children as an illustration of how it is that we come to Him and connect to Him. It's not about knowing a bunch of stuff. It's not about being so erudite. It's about just coming to Him like a little kid. God reveals truth, in other words, to the humble seeker. A couple of comments about this. This is not a statement about naivete. This isn't be innocent and unaware. Jesus was also the guy who said, be wise as a serpent. This isn't a statement about naivete. This isn't a statement about substance. This isn't a statement about just no less stuff. That's not what Jesus is after here. He's not saying, don't read philosophy. He's not saying, don't read the Bible academically. Just stick to your little Sunday school charts that you had when you were in the second grade. He's not saying don't grow up in what you know or how you think about it. But he's saying come with the dependence of a little child. 
Lyle Wilson and I had breakfast this week, and we were talking about how I'm really proud, I have to tell you. You can see a lot of this on YouTube. I am proud of the way that people take the Bible seriously, both in their belief of it and in their approach to it, are making honest and robust and cogent and careful argument and defense for faith these days. You can find, as I said, you've maybe seen some of this reams of debate on YouTube. There's a new generation of, and, and a growing group of uh, scholars who take what I believe to be God's Word very seriously. That hasn't always been the case. A, a little bit of boring history in the late middle and late 1800s. Well-meaning, well-meaning, mostly German but European scholars began to move in a direction, first of all, it began with studying the Bible academically and studying the Bible and thinking about God and connection to God and thinking about the person of Jesus in an academic way and approaching this as an ancient text the way you would other ancient texts. And they began, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, they began to drift further and further away from believing the Bible. One of the linchpins of this was an Old Testament idea. There are also New Testament, you know, the, in the New Testament you had a whole search for the historical Jesus. And if you, do a, if you do a search on that in Google, you'll come up with reams of material. It's still going on today in various circles like the Jesus Seminar, and you may have heard of that group before. But it began with an analysis of the Old Testament, and what they arrived at was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were not really historical, they were written to justify Jewish designs on territory around them and securing their country. And these were stories that were kind of called together, some made up, some exaggerated, some meant like they were written, and they were collected from various different sources, and there wasn't a guy, Moses, who sat down and wrote all of this stuff. There may have been an historical figure named Moses, but very little of what we have there is actually accurate. And it's, again, it's put together from a, a variety of different sources or different kind of, of documentary sources. And this became known as the documentary hypothesis. And, of course, it undermined confidence in certainly the Old Testament, and especially uh, the first five books of the Bible. And this became standard fare in most American seminaries throughout the early 20th century. So most denominational seminaries, and I have to tell you, those of us who grew up in traditions like even the Catholic Church, but certainly Protestant traditions like the Episcopalian Church or the Lutheran Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Methodist Church, many of those seminaries were heavily influenced by European, especially German liberalism, and this view of the Bible. So you ended up, by the time you ended seminary and you were ready to go out and take a church and become past people and help them work through their connection with God, you ended up feeling like these are wonderful stories, probably not really true, but they give us a good moral compass. And it cut the life out of it. It cut the heart out of it. So what you had then in response to that, early in the 20th century, you had the rise of a movement that in the very early stages was known as fundamentalism. And fundamentalism's response was this. And fundamentalism had heavy influence in 
denominations like Baptist tradition, which I came from, Assemblies of God, which a few of you may have been influenced by, or non-denominational especially, and especially, honestly, in small town and rural America, it had a profound influence. And fundamentalism, you know, part of its design was awesome. What fundamentalism said is, let's get back to the fundamentals. But part of what it also was, fundamentalism was a rejection of academia. So in its early form, not in its later form, it, it grew up. But in its very early form, what fundamentalism said essentially was, don't go to those seminaries and don't study the Bible that way because it will lead you down the primrose path to error. And that is a long way of saying, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. This isn't a statement about substance. It's not a statement about what it is you know. This is a statement about attitude. Always recognize that God is in control, even of truth, especially of truth. Sometimes not thinking things through, not studying, really, sometimes that's a sign of pride. This stuff is not important enough for me to think about thoroughly. I've got this. You know, the opposite can be true. This isn't a statement about substance. This is a statement about approach, about attitude. First of all, God reveals truth to the humble seeker. Second truth, God is revealed by Jesus. Now, we could give a lot of time to this this morning, but I'm going to be quick, and maybe I'll give you lunch conversation. Jesus is saying here exactly what he seems to be saying. This is incredibly exclusive. This is counterculture to 21st century American political correctness, Western political correctness, it reminds me of what Jesus said in a different kind of context to his disciples in John chapter 14. I want to read this real quick. This is often a passage that is read, and I've read it many times in a funeral setting. Jesus said this to his disciples. This is near the end of his life, nearer than the context of Matthew 11. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Look, if it weren't so, I would have told you. I love how just authentic and real that sounds. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas, who's got to be my favorite disciple, doubting Thomas, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Like, what? Wait, what? What the what, Jesus? What are you talking about? So how can we know the way? And Jesus gives him one of those cryptic Jesus answers, but it has so much in it, it's mind-blowing. Jesus answered, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And then he makes it worse. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then he explains why. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. <laughs> he is the source which reveals the Father because of his unique relationship to the Father. Okay, enough said about that, but let me give us some lunch conversation. I've been asked, ironically, in light of what we're going to talk about today, I have been asked three times in the last month, and maybe more if I'd had more conversations with different ones of you. Can Jesus reveal the Father 
through some other means than the way Christians have traditionally understood it. I'm reinterpreting the question. Not all of you asked me that question exactly that way. But has it got to be exactly like this, Ed? Is there a way that Jesus could reveal the Father that we don't get? I mean, are all those people, even people who have never heard the name Jesus before, are they condemned to be apart from God and apart from His rest now and forever? So I want to be honest with you. So let's step out. If I can, please, I'm going to put on a a different shirt and pants right now. Not literally. That would be embarrassing. But I'm going to put on a different set of clothes now, and I want to talk brother to brother and brother to sister. Just let you know, honestly, we have to say it's entirely possible. Anything is possible with God. But I still share Jesus with people when I have the chance. Even if they claim to be at peace, even if they make claims that their spirituality is really working for them, even if they're super sincere, I still share Jesus with people in conversations like that. Why? Because I'm sure of this. (laughs) I'm not sure of that. I'm really sure of this. I don't know if God is at work in that somehow. I don't know if Jesus is showing the Father to them in a way that I haven't calculated and don't understand, but I'm really sure of this. Sorry for the stupid illustration, but this past week, our youngest son, Graham, went to Virginia Tire and Auto and brought his car in to have the oil changed. And they called him later that day and said, Mr. Allen, your, the tread is bad on your tire. You need two new tires in the front. And he said, you know, I'm going to get rid of this car in the next month or two, and I don't really want to put anything into it. And they said, okay, we'll change the oil. So they changed the oil. They pulled the car into the parking lot after work. Graham goes to Virginia Tire and Auto to pick up the car, and he can't move it. And he gets out, and the tire is blown up. It's completely flat, his front tire. So Graham goes in and begins, Diane and I hope and pray, graciously and respectfully, and he ends probably in a different direction than that, saying, What happened? My tire is completely flat. And their response was, we told you you needed two new tires. And his response was, what? (laughs) You didn't tell me my tire blew up. And by the way, it blew up while you had it. What happened? They never took responsibility for Graham's tire. Now, Is it possible that the tire was in such bad shape that driving from the garage, backing out, and pulling into a parking space 100 feet away, somewhere in that transaction, the tire blew up? Yes, it's possible. I doubt it seriously. (laughs) I think something happened. I think somebody ran over something metal. Maybe not. Maybe at exactly that moment, in that three-minute exchange, maybe the tire blew up. It's very possible. 
But I offer Jesus in every conversation that I get a chance to because I believe him when he said, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I also offer Jesus because of what he offers. So, two invitations this morning. Invitation number one. If we come to Jesus, he offers us rest from our burdens. Jesus is not addressing special circumstances here. He's not talking about first century circumstances. He's talking about the burden of grief and finances and unmet expectations. He's talking about the weariness of frustrating parents and commuting and conflict. He's talking about the burden of our concern over children and health and missed opportunities. And he's talking about the weariness of depression and aloneness. He's talking about the burden of carrying secret sins and the weariness of unanswered prayer. The context of this, this idea of rest, is really the law of the Sabbath. And that's what he talks about in chapter 12 right afterwards. We get this story about the Sabbath and how Jesus looked very differently at the Sabbath and talked very differently and treated the Sabbath very differently than his Jewish contemporaries. And this is the audience to whom he's speaking. And essentially what they did is they had an elaborate set of rules prescribing how you could and could not rest because the Sabbath was considered a day of rest. And Jesus is essentially saying, no, I'm going to invite you into real rest. Not the rule of rest, not the law of rest, but I'm going to invite you into God's rest. Jesus stands opposed in this passage and in everything that he did to the law of rest, and he offers the freedom of real rest. So this isn't rest as opposed to labor. This is rest as opposed to striving. This is rest as opposed to my self-salvation project. This is soul rest. This is the end of your need for control and trying to keep all the balls in the air. This is the end of the all-too-familiar-it-all-depends-on-me anxiety. As I said, this is the end of our self-salvation projects. This is rest, not rule. As we said, this isn't an expectation. This isn't a requirement. This is an invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Invitation number two which is first cousin invitation number one. If we adopt the life and teaching of Jesus, he offers us rest from our burdens. If we come to him, and if we adopt his teaching, he offers us rest from our burdens. Contemporaries of Jesus, both before him, during his teaching ministry, and after Jesus, contemporaries of Jesus used a phrase similar to this. Jesus didn't make this phrase up. The phrase was familiar in the culture, they called it the yoke of the law or the yoke of the kingdom of God. And by that, they meant obedience to the Torah. So the yoke of the law was following the law's rules, following the Torah. And some of you may know a yoke is that big wooden thing that they would put around the necks of oxen. And often, usually, in fact, yokes were double. So I would have... Imagine me as a cow, not too hard to imagine. I would have one around me, and then the cow sitting next to me would have the other half of the yoke around their neck. We would be yoked together. So when the farmer cracks the whip, we both pull the load. The yoke enables us 
together to share and to pull the load forward. Imagine God creating a vast and beautiful space in which to play and grow and enjoy ourselves. And then imagine that at the very edge of it, he builds a fence around it to protect us from what's outside it. This is like our dog analogy, for those of you who were here several weeks ago. And beyond it are wild animals and rocks and unkept terrain and poison ivy and you name it. And instead, we have play equipment and beautiful manicured lawns and rivers and lakes and all of it we just get to enjoy. And he's built this fence around it to protect us. That's a perfect analogy for living within God's law. It's meant to be protective, to keep us within the bounds of how life works most effectively. It's not meant to give us a list of things that we can't do. It's meant to build protection around our lives. Sometimes, and I think in the case of the Jewish contemporaries of Jesus, I think they spent their time, instead of running and enjoying and playing in the vast space that God had given them to play in, I think Jesus' Jewish contemporaries spent an awful lot of time inspecting the fence, examining for, for holes and for breaks and in a place where they thought there might be a break, they would shore it up and build it stronger. And they would survey the fence. And again, instead of running and playing and enjoying, I think Jesus' invitation here is essentially, come run around with me. Let's play together. Look at all the stuff that God has given us to do and enjoy. Let's just enjoy it. Come to me. Let go of your burdens. It's worth noting that Jesus puts his teaching here on par with the Old Testament law. I think it's also interesting that today, I think we don't do what Jesus' Jewish contemporaries did. I don't think we're out examining the fence. Today, I think we're doing our best to figure out how we get to the other side. Because we're so intrigued by what we see over there. But there's not freedom over there. There's not freedom on the other side of the fence. There's adventure. But there's chaos, and there's danger, and there's life ruin, and there's death. If we adopt the yoke of Jesus, if we take his lifestyle and his teaching upon us, we will find rest for our souls. After all, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Don't miss this. We should remember that Jesus' load is not lighter because he requires less. So don't miss this. Jesus says his burden is easy and light. The load is not lighter because he requires less. In fact, in one teaching context, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus offered up this scary observation. Jesus says, look, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Yeah, those guys who are, make it their full-time job to get everything exactly right, unless you're more right than they are, You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that. The load in following Jesus is not less demanding. But it's much lighter because He carries the demand. He does it for us. That's the invitation. To come in and accept what I've done for you. It goes back to what I said a couple of weeks ago. You know, often we spell 
life and especially religion, D.O. is what I have to do. And God spells it D-O-N-E. It's what's been done for you. So there are two responses today, right? Response number one is for you personally. There are those here today who have never settled this matter. Have never fully said, yes, I accept your rest. Yes, I come to you. I take your lifestyle and teaching on me. I get it. I believe it. I have made a mess of what I've done so far in and with my life, and I accept what you are offering instead. Yes, Jesus. And if you have never made that decision, I want you to know I've prayed for you this week. I've prayed that today, literally, would be the day when you would get it, maybe for the first time. For the rest of us, this is a chance to do two things. This is a chance to say yes again. And this is a chance to recommit ourselves to offering this to others. Because those who are far from God, this is what's at stake. God's rest is at stake for them. Spiritual vitality is at stake for them. Being what they were designed to be is at stake for them. I thought of this illustration this week, so I'm going to try to recreate this if I can. And if it doesn't work for you, then please remember everything else we've said and forget this. I want you to imagine that you and I are ants working in an ant colony. And we've built up our little colony right here. And we're on the shore so that we can be close to water. But it's a pretty arid land. And there's not tons of food. So here we are, scratching out our living, and we're doing okay. But we get all kinds of rumors around us of something better. In fact, we're told that if we can make it all the way to the other side of the water, there's a land that's green and rich and wonderful. And all the food we'd want and great soil to build our little ant farm out of. But we can't see anywhere near to the other side of the water Don't know for sure there even is another side of the water. So many of us will say, in fact, some of our best scientists will say, you know what, it's a great body of water. There really is nothing on the other side. It's just water. We've examined it. We've looked at it. And it's just water. Now, you and I know that we can go out and float on water for a little while but not for too long, so don't be crazy and trying to go out, jump in the water, and see if you can float to something else, because there is nothing else. Enjoy your life here. There are others who say, no, there's definitely something on the other side. And what they do is, in a place just outside of our anthill, they offer long exercises in holding your breath, so that you can float in the water for a while, and then when you begin to submerge, you can hold your breath for a little while longer. And this will really do it. This will get you to the other side. So come to our breath-holding exercises. This Saturday will only cost you $150. And they offer elaborate breath-holding exercises. And then there's another group just outside of our ant farm who tell us it's all about stretching out together, connecting 
foot to hand, foot to hand. And if we get enough of us, we can stretch all the way across. The current will, will bring us down. But again, we just keep stretching and we keep stretching. And eventually, we will make it to the other side. And they offer holding classes and also swimming classes so that those who are further out in the stream can swim really hard and swim against the current. And so they have their Sunday mornings, they have their swimming classes and holding classes exercises. And then the scientists who are gathered together in the science building are saying, rubbish, there's nothing on the other side and these are just exercises in making people feel better about themselves and about their world. And there are a few scientists who are well-meaning who say that's okay if they feel better about themselves that's awesome but there is nothing on the other side now part of what they use as evidence is regularly we see dead ants wash up on our shore right in front of us the scientists will tell us you know clearly evidence that some of the ant farms upstream have tried some of this idiotic stuff that you're talking about (laughs) and they've just washed down in the current down next to us But there's a rumor among us. Downstream, way downstream, there's a piece of land that floats on the water. Some call it a boat. It has little pieces of dirt on it where you can scratch out an ant farm. It's tough. Building a nice home is tougher than it is where we live. But there's good food supply. And the boat will carry you all the way across the river to the other side. I guess to finish out the analogy, we'd have to say there was once a great ant <laughs> that came and told us about the, down the stream and the boat. <laughs> but some of our more skeptical folks, not our scientists, our scientists are logical and they think, you know, the fact that we know that there are ant colonies upstream suggests that there's a good indication that there are probably some establishment downstream. We don't know for sure. But probably, others will say, no, there's nothing that way. Don't go that way. Come to our water hold, uh, breath-holding seminars. Don't go off in that direction. It's stupid. And some are generous enough to say, go off and try it if you want, because all paths lead to the other side of the, the river. So try that if you think. There may not be a boat, but there'll be something for you. Just be sincere as you go. But in order to go down and get the boat, you know, basically all we have to do is walk on. Two things are required, right? A boat and leaving our home. We've got to leave. We've got to leave the ant farm. We've got to strike out in this direction, go downstream. Never seen any of these ants. They've never come up. We don't know what's downstream. We've got to take it on faith. We've got to leave our ant farm and go downstream. We've got to hope there's a boat. We've heard that there is. And then we've got to climb on board. Okay, some of you are here this morning in your ant farm, and you're maybe hearing for the first time there's a boat downstream. Listen to this. Let's just make the analogy ridiculously stupid. Some of us have traveled downstream, and we saw the boat. It's awesome. And we climbed on, and we got onto the boat, and we enjoyed ourselves, and we saw the water from a new direction. We looked back, and we saw, we even looked back and saw our ant colony, and it all made sense to us. And then two or three days later, we're still on the boat. 
And we're realizing, well, we still got to eat. We still got to build a house. And so you know what happened on the boat? On the boat, different ants started organizing breath-holding seminars and holding and swimming seminars and seminars on how to build the most effective home for yourself on the boat because there's not as much dirt available. We took it back all on ourselves. We forgot about just resting and just watching what God does and participating. So for us this morning, it's about accepting the invitation and for many of us, accepting it again and then committing to offering that to others. Let's pray. Loving Lord, I pray that you would use this great invitation of Jesus and continue to speak into our hearts and lives about the rest that you offer, about who you are. Lord, I pray that you would make your teaching plain and clear to us. And Father, for those of us who have have, uh, stepped into life with you, we ask you to forgive us for the ways that we've taken it back up ourselves. We turn that over to you this morning. Our life is in your hands. We rest in you. Uh, Jesus, help us this morning to come to you like little children, accepting your offer, not trying to earn it. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen.